Welcome one and all to Vision on Sound here on Fab Radio International with me, Martin Holmes. There's not much time for gassing this week as we've got that copper warren back to bend our ear rolls about the Sweeney. And we don't half go on about it. How are you doing? Hello, Martin. Yes, I'm fine, and your good self. I'm presenting that we've not had 10 minutes of conversation before we get into this. No, it's absolutely <laughs> true. A few uh, months ago, you talked with me about a police series, and we've also talked about yeah. spy series, and you're, you've come back because we thought we'd talk about one specific police series this time. And so we're going to talk about an old favourite of a lot of people, which is known as, in these ear parts, Mr. Regan's Fast Card. Oh, no, it's not. It's called The Sweeney. The Sweeney Todd Flying Squad. And uh, I believe you're a bit of a fan. I am a fan. I uh, yes, yes. I have a um, sort of begrudging like for the Sweeney mm. because it's one of those let's kick in the door and jump on what would have been the mould for the police procedural series mm-hmm. in those days mm-hmm. because they were Z cars or they were Dixon of Dot Green. Mm. Well, they were nice, comfy things, and this mm-hmm. one sort of booted in the doors, yep. told you to get your trousers on and drag you down in your uh, knickers and threw you in the back of a frog granada. Right. It's that kind of series, really, isn't it? In preparation for this, I did actually watch them, so I've not seen any Sweeney for quite some time because Ooh. whenever it comes on the television now, it's, oh, it's this old stuff, this old sexist stuff, let's watch something else. Uh, fair enough. And so basically I watched Regan, the arm chair cinema kind of pilot really for um, the Sweeney and then I watched the first episode of the Sweeney Uh, the Sweeney ran from 1974 to 1978 had four series of 13 episodes and sorry three series of 13 and one series of 14 because they made an extra Christmas special with Morecambe and Wise yes and (laughs) and two feature films there has been yeah. a remake this century with was it Ray Winston, wasn't it? But, yes, in um, 2012, yes. But, but uh, less which, said about that, the which, better. Which took off in a small way, uh, i.e. not at all. Yeah. As squibs go, it was quite a damp one. But going back to the original, The Sweeney. Founded by Ian Kennedy Martin. Mm-hmm. The Kennedy Martin... Uh, Brothers, the brothers... Dynasty. <laughs> the brothers Kennedy Martin. They're villains on the manor, Yes. Absolutely. Uh, it's interesting how it came about. He he just wanted to. Well, Kennedy, it's interesting how the Kennedy Martins reinvent police drama, mm. isn't it? Between them, yes. You can go back to Z Cars. Mm. That was very innovative. Mm. You've got Sweeney mm. and you've got Juliet Bravo. Mm. So they they're quite a stamp on the uh, drama world. Mm. For police, police series. Mm. But like you said, the Sweeney basically sort of dropped a hand grenade into what was quite a cosy world, really, of television. The trusty old copper and everything like that. And, and basically, guys turned up not wearing uniforms. They were sort of prancing around in, in very wide lapel jackets and 
Kipper ties. I have to say mm. that I am sat here in my brown suit, mm. wearing my dark brown shirt and yellow wide kipper tie oh, and hush puppies. It's a very brown decade we're talking about, isn't it? <laughs> One that was very proud and prominent with its fashion, mm. shall we say. Yeah. It never looks well on screen, does it? It, it ages so badly. It is weird, though, isn't it? Because actually, looking at the time, I mean, I remember Sweeney particularly being, I mean, some of the big boys in school, <laughs> you know, the, the ones who liked to basically pin you against a wall and go, shut it, you're nicked, or whatever, because that was... Gives you sweets. Yeah, gives it, it, it all your nosh. It's a knockerina, yeah. Yeah, uh, they, they, they were watching it, you see. Now, I, I was obviously, uh, certainly, I would probably have seen the later seasons, but I suspect I was a bit young for the for the earliest uh, earliest ones when they were on TV. But these young lads used to get terribly excited about it. And basically what you've got is you've got these guys, like I say, in ordinary clothes, screaming around the streets in, well, what looked like ordinary cars, really. And yeah. uh, generally speaking this is not what we're used to with with Z cars and Bert Lynch is in his uniform with his shiny buttons and and they've all got nice little Ford Escorts with stenciling on and flashing blue lights on them what we're getting now is basically car chases in the vein of things like I suppose at the time Bullet and stuff like that absolutely it it was imitative to sort of strap the camera to the side of the Mm. vehicle I mean, it's standard play now. Mm. Uh, there was none of this running a car along on a film trailer either. No. It was literally... Stunt drivers, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, they were literally making a lot of this up as they went along. <laughs> it's the kind of telly we <laughs> but, like, really, isn't it? What we yes. do, I don't know. Drive over there. Drive quickly. Turn around. Spin around a bit. <laughs> it's rather akin to the bill, really, where the series was written around the fact that, right, we can't make it studio-bound. Mm. Look, we've got these lightweight handheld cameras, mm. so let's use them. Yeah. But miniaturization of film cameras, uh, automatic film cameras, mm. and everything like that for the Sweeney were rolled out. Mm. And let's, let's be fair here. It was, it was made by a, a group of people called Houston Films. Mm. They were basically the film arm of uh, Thames Television. Mm. Now, Thames was kicking around before the Sweeney started a very lacklustre series. It was not quite cutting the mustard, and that was um, Special Branch. Mm. But also, they're having success with programmes like Valdevalk, mm. which is used in films, which I think was excellent. This was the period where they switched to 16mm film as opposed to yeah. film and videotape, wasn't it? So yes. so this was a kind of transition. I mean, the first, the last two series of Special Branch were sort of like a prototype Sweeney, weren't they, really? They were kind of same kind of number of episodes, the same filming style to a certain extent. Two guys... Lots of, well, not lots of car chases, but filmed on the streets of London, shall we say. Yeah, uh, um, the ethos was there, the, mm. the foundation was there, but it just didn't quite grab the imagination. No. There wasn't anything really that um, you couldn't see on another channel. Yeah. But of course, the other thing is that as sort of the second fiddle in it, Patrick Mower, wasn't it, in in Special Branch, who basically spent the, a lot of the rest of his career doing precisely that running round, Absolutely, running round yeah. in, in well in, in various uh, fashionably dubious outfits and and, point, <laughs> and, po- and pointing guns at people and shouting at them a lot. Yeah, his career was kind of defined by Special Branch, really. After yeah, I mean, but... he'd finished in Callan at that point, so you know, mm. and basically, oh, he's young leading man material, young thrusting buck. So, so we got the mysterious target that we can never see again. Um, yes, um, which is kind um, which of... is basically him playing the same character. Mm. Yeah, but the thing with 
Patrick Murray's that then then he'd appear on programs like uh, Who Done It? Oh they? yes, the the early hit he did Bloodhound. Yes, yes. <laughs> there were people who did manage to make a career of being television personalities. You'd get sort of fashion pages in the TV Times and things yeah. like that. So you know, I mean, that's that's the thing. That's the career you want, and it and it served him very well. But yeah. Houston Films looked at what they'd done with Special Branch and went, Oh God, no! And let's do something else. Yeah, it came down to sales mm. with Houston Films. They wanted it abroad to sell it abroad, mm. and it just was no most other countries went what's so special about this mm. and also we are coming out of a period of when the flying squad was mm. under great scrutiny mm. by the then um, commissioner of the metropolitan police mm. the man who said it was a major contribution to road safety mm. sir robert mark mm. who basically started wheedling out police corruption and mm. in the early part of the 70s is probably at its height of corruption mm with fingers in pies, their their hand in hand with the pawn barons of Soho, yes. um, to the point where their their bosses are going on holiday with them. Mm. So Ian Kennedy Martin was, was looking into the background and he got to know a few people who worked in the flying squad mm. and he went drinking with them. Right. And whilst <laughs> And was never seen again. Always a good plan hatched <laughs> from this. And out of some massive hangover. <laughs> Yes, it seems to be that most TV programmes are either founded in a a TV studio's bar Mm. under a great haze, Mm. or, you know, they were spent in some seedy-sidey club with some... What sort of age are you, Warren? Yeah. No, just generally. (laughs) Early 50s. Right, yeah. So, I like to say I'm in my 30s, yes. We know that you've worked in the in the police force. Yes. You have worked as a police officer over the years. Yes. And, yes. and the thing about this is, is have you ever, did you do something before that or, or was you, have you always always worked in, in, the, in the, has that been your job? No. So um, did you work in an office in the, in the 70s or the 80s at all? No. no. It's just that I remember, we used to go and we'd get hammered at lunchtime. And you get, and again, I've been in sort of environments where people would get, you know, they'd have these three-hour lunch, and you think it feels mythical, yeah. But actually, the culture was everybody drank all the time, drank, smoked, yeah, ate pies, yeah. So when sort of the you know life on Mars is sort of spoofing that to a certain extent, it's not really a spoof. It's just that's pretty much how it was. It's a reflection, yeah. They all wore leather jackets, uh, smoked like chimneys, and drank like fishes, basically. And and uh, as far as we know, with with Jack Regan, shagged a lot of air hostesses as well, but there we go. (laughs) (laughs) Jack Regan is based on a real character, which you would naturally expect it. And he is the guy that uh, Ian Kennedy Martin... I don't think he's ever mentioned his name, mm. um, but he says he's the guy he, he used to go drinking with. Hmm? Is it Jock Rogan, Bailey Jen? Oh, no, no, that sounds familiar, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jock Raglan, yes, no. The fact the that you think goes John Thor, and this brings us to Armchair Cinema, which is... Yes. Armchair Cinema was basically a, a weekly... They made feature films, didn't they? Sort of 80-minute feature films for television. And yeah. one of... And it's, a lot of them seem to have been turned into sort of pilots and stuff, but this was kind of like in the era of Get Carter and the like. So there was a very sort of gritty film notion, idea of film. I think film. the film stock that they used, did you say Six, 16, mil, 16 mil, and the yeah. fact that London was grubby and dirty in the 70s. Mm. That's what I... I remember very profoundly about it. 
Mm. Gives it that gritty edge, gives mm. it that real edge of realism. And, you know, it's not overlit and it's it's filmed on the hoof, isn't it? Yeah, and you get that sort of hair in the gate and you get sort of odd, dodgy shots and somehow that gives it a sort of very similitude, doesn't it? It kind of makes, yeah. it feels like almost, to a certain extent, uh, it's not quite there, but it's almost like a documentary film style. And it's, it's, yeah. and it's quite interesting. The original film, though, Regan, starring, of course, the mighty John Thor, is about 80 minutes and is called Regan. It's very different in style to the series that followed. You can see what, what they did and didn't do, what they picked up and what they didn't pick up. But still has the pairing of him and Dennis Waterman, who plays Sergeant George Carter. That's it. But they are, they are actually estranged in Regan, aren't they? They're, they're not old mates. They've had a falling out and he's moved on and his wife his wife wants him to have a nice safe job. Nice safe office yes, job, he George. Uh, he didn't like his methods. Mm, didn't like his methods, yeah. And this basically gives us a, a plot where, funnily enough, the opening episode, because Jack Regan is a loner, isn't he? He's very much a loner. But the interesting thing about that opening episode is I kept thinking of the opening episode of Morse. It's almost like they used the same beats. He's an outsider. He doesn't really get on with people. He's introduced again to his sergeant, and from there we build a series. I just think that was kind of interesting that John Thor, obviously being in both. Do you know what gets me most, though? Mm. Do you know what gets me most about it? He's about 35. John Thor. <laughs> yes. And Dennis Waterman's only about a year younger. Yeah. But John Thor looks about 50, doesn't he? I mean, he really does. not you know. <laughs> well, to, to quote his wife, this was their drinking period. Yeah. Their time on the Sweeney. <sighs> Blimey, Charlie. Yeah, they were prestigious drinkers. Yeah. And uh, he did have a... I mean, he was a drinker and he used to drink regularly mm. with Ian Kennedy Martin because mm. the, the part was designed for him mm. and yeah they were both victims of their own alcoholism it's a certain extent. i mean he's he's done bits parts everything but this is a decade on from red cap, red cap. so when he did yes, red cap is. he must have been about 20 26 26 26 yeah. 26 25 26 yeah Crikey. i mean it's just ridiculous funnily Life enough was not kind to him no he was actually slightly well known by one of my relatives you know I, I always remember uh, being told, you know, oh, his dad, his dad was talking to me. I, I think his dad had a grocer's shop or uh, somewhere in Manchester area in Corton, I think it was. And said, oh yeah, you know, he wants to go off to drama school. <laughs> the daft lad. <laughs> daft lad. And he, as I say, he's a he's a northern chap, yeah. Mr. Thor. But this is proper. He's a proper television actor, though, isn't he? I mean, it's sort of like you say. I mean, yeah, you oh, think absolutely. about it, he would have gone to drama school in the early '60s and basically made a career as a television. Like they all do. Held a spear mm -hmm. on stage for a little while in a Shakespeare. Yeah. But basically about 30... I mean, you know, just it doesn't bear thinking about, really, when you, when you see him in, in no. Regan especially. I mean, he's so world-weary, you know. And yet, obviously, Absolutely. you know, they do play him up as a bit of a Jack the Lad and a bit of a ladies' man. <laughs> Which can be a bit disturbing sometimes because there's one episode that's got a very young Jala Ellis in it mm. who appears to be the barmaid that he's pulled that night. Yes. And, I mean, Jala Ellis at that age must have been about 18. Mm. <laughs> And that was very bizarre. I mean, the Sweeney generally says a lot about uh, women's roles in television yes. in the 1970s generally. I mean, basically, yeah. one of the books I have on the programme does actually have a section which basically is boobies alert, you know. I mean, it's kind of... The, every so often, you know, someone would... There would be a, a, a quick flash and everything like that. But generally speaking, I, I believe that what, one of the reasons why we got things like Linda LaPlante's career, you know, Prime Suspect and what have you, is because... 
she was sick of getting roles as the whore who gets shot or or whatever. Yeah, there was literally the, the good roles for women were virtually non-existent on the Sweeney. Really, and, uh, and most of the female writers of that time were converting classical stories, mm. weren't they? Yeah, yeah and, basically, um, it was very male orientated. And, and of course, a lot of male writers could not write for women for love and money. No, and certainly in the Sweeney, they were either sitting there, they were June Brown with a fag in the corner of her mouth going, oh, what's he done now? <laughs> oh, Nick. Like, air another cock and your mother. Or basically, there were prostitutes or air hostesses. That seemed to be... The women. Oh, oh, also, a uniformed officer to make the tea love. That, I think, seems to be the, uh, the general role that they had. Ooh, ooh, contentious. No, no, contentious. They, they just that seems to be the you know the role they give them, and it's kind of, it is kind of weird, generally speaking, because it's a it's a lads' club, isn't it? That's the thing. I think the Sweeney, as fifty whatever it's fifty three episodes of television, it's a lads' club. Yeah, you know, very much so. Uh, it had when I started associating it in the police office, it had a very, still had a very hardcore sort of male following Mm. within the police service. If it was on and you were in the canteen, Mm. everyone shut up and watched the Sweeney (laughs) because you'll learn something. Or you'll have some grizzled old sergeant, or in the days when they could smoke in the canteen, Mm. some grizzled old sergeant with a a roll-up Droopy yeah. cigarette behind his ear telling us, there's the days, my son. <laughs> it was just like that all the time. This is a perfectly yeah. accurate demonstration of what policing was like in the 1970s. This is a documentary series and you should all watch it. <laughs> it's interesting, really, because about the same time as the Sweeney finished, of course, we got Starsky and Hutch and everybody started wearing mirrored sunglasses, didn't they? <laughs> yes, and, and painting their Ford Cortinas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm glad you mentioned the Cortina because the one thing I find about uh, watching the Sweeney is I feel that it's where all my Past cars come back to haunt me. That's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, they drive the Ford Console GT, Mm. um, what I would call the um, Angel Delight coloured car. Mm. Uh, NHK to bronze five M. Mm. It's beautiful. Mm. It's a beautiful car, isn't it? These things are handles like a bus. (laughs) Yes. I mean, they're huge. I mean, they went on to, I think, the last series. They had a a Ford Granada, Mm. an S Reg Ford Granada, Mm. silver one. Mm. But, um, yeah, and then, of course, you had... Sneaking along behind was the Mark III Cortina in blue with the rectangular headlamps, which was the second car I ever owned. Oh. And I had it was even the right colour. I'm, I'm beginning to think it, the reason it's I got it so cheap was because it used to have been written off in the Sweeney. <laughs> <laughs> I got me through college, so I'm, not, I'm never really quibbled about that. <laughs> that also used to double as one of the police cars because they mm. used to stick a magnetic blue well, light. Well, it's, it's blue, isn't it? It's blue. on the front as well. Yeah. But, yeah, it, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, they went to four and Ford gave them everything that they wanted. Um, they said, yep, yep, you want Ford vehicles, we'll give you Ford vehicles. The only thing the baddies drove was, of course, the Mark III Jag, which is an absolute beauty for a getaway car. Now, the interesting thing to me is, apparently, the titles, you know, these iconic titles, which are kind of done as this very extreme exposure, uh, well, black and white, but tinted blue. Yeah. It's sort of slideshow, really, isn't it? Telling the story. Apparently, that was all... Because they had nothing else and it was done on the cheap, they just went yeah. over and filmed this stunt and that was your title sequence and just took frames from it. But it is incredibly iconic, that car coming towards you, the drive around in the scrapyard, the crash jag. You know, I mean, basically, it is it's a Sweeney episode you always wish they'd actually made, really, isn't it? You know? Well, just, just to let you know, they did. Oh, well done. It's from The Ringer. Right. And the, whilst they were filming, because uh, the spoiler alert here, where they get to Ringer at the end, they're having that uh, fight in the sort of bit of derelict ground. Right. That's the derelict uh, ground they're in, is it? 
that's the derelict ground they're in. So they literally went, we need some titles. Oh, Drive around in circles a bit, lads. <laughs> yeah, and it was literally like that. They they literally did that, took some stills and said, fine, cobble it together. And of course, you have that wonderful music score, don't you? I hadn't realised how much of it was just library music. I, you know, yeah. apparently the only thing composed for it was the theme tune, which again is astonishing, yeah. astonishing piece I mean, of music. I mean, wonderful piece of music by jazz composer Harry South. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did the opening and the closing titles. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. And Probably one of the most memorable theme musics there is. Certainly from the seventies, yes. Uh, well, yeah, and it does it does scream the title at you as well, mm. doesn't it? <laughs> the Swedey, the Swedey. But unfortunately, yes. and I do say this, yes, yes, never sing again, Holmes. Is what you're saying? Yeah. No, it was the uh, <laughs> is the uh, series four titles. Mm. Oh, the the prison titles. lens. Mm. Yes. It doesn't date well. It just don't like it. I mean, the baddie with the sunglasses mm. on and oh, punching the lens. Yes, it was a bit, yeah, bit rock and roll. It was a bit too yeah. much. It's, it that is actually screams American market to you, doesn't it? Well, the thing that I, I do have this theory, and I, and I I think I've piped up about this before, but I'm generally of the opinion that if a show changes its title sequence, you know it's going to be its final season. Yes. It seems to be the way, I mean, or let's face it, if they think, oh, let's revamp a Doctor Who, let's give them a new set of titles, you know they're at the door by the end of the series. (laughs) And I think it's the same thing. There just seems to be this way where it's almost like an act of desperation to somehow make it seem fresh and new and exciting so people won't go, oh, we've seen this one before. I mean, there must have been, in that pre-video days, the only way you could tell something wasn't a repeat unless you actually watched it was to look for the tiniest, tiniest writing in the TV or Radio Times that said, Here's a repeat. How did they say it? Repeat. Repeat. Shh. Or rupt, actually. Rupt often. Rupt. You know, so I imagine a lot of people thought, oh, well, I've seen this before. You go, no, 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 it's a new one. It's a new one. It's a new series. But then again, the other advantage of always having the same title sequence is you could slip an old one in and nobody would notice. Absolutely. And it did get a, re- a re-airing. I mean, it's been on and off the screens for years, yeah. hasn't it? Well, it still seems to turn up on ITV3 in the afternoons at the moment. <laughs> it's a good staple. So we've got the Sweeney based mm. on the Flying Squad. Mm-hmm. Quick potted history of the Flying Squad. Mm-hmm. Founded in 1919. Do you know why it's called the Flying Squad? Uh, um, because they had helicopters. <laughs> 1919. Yes, absolutely. They invented helicopters. the helicopters. That's how they got them into Where Eagles Dare. <laughs> pa- powered by Victorian children. Yes. <laughs> Possibly uh, Georgian by then, I suspect, but yes. <laughs> or, <laughs> yes, the Victorian children had grown up and had urchins of their own. Yes, <laughs> keeping it in the family. <laughs> What happened was criminals were getting more and more sneaky. Well, horses were getting faster. And more and more mobile. <laughs> so when, when they founded the Flying Squad in 1919, mm. they didn't have motorised vehicles. Mm. They bought some dodgy trucks off the mm. army because there was a lot of war surplus about. And what they used to do is they would drive around criminal hotspots yeah. and they used to have panels on the side of the van, which they used to change the name of. And it was usually railway companies because okay. it was an easiest thing to do. And little spy holes. So when they'd see a criminal on the side of the road, mm. they'd drive alongside them, and literally the back doors would open. They'd grab them and close the doors and drive off wow. with them. So they were nicknamed the Flying Squad. Wow. And they used to drive around in Rolls Royces in the uh, 20s and 30s. Yeah, I was right. I was watching a, an old silent movie a few weeks ago, and I, I'm just trying, I'm struggling to remember the name of it now, but it was. It had the Flying Squad. I think it was an early Hitchcock, mm. and, they, and they actually referred to them as the Flying Squad. And, they, you know, and there's this van that comes... It's like Corporal Jones's van from Dad's. Yeah, 
But it was still faster than walking. <laughs> Although, as we all know from old films, everybody walked very quickly because they're only at 16 frames a second. <laughs> they had a weird gait about That's them, why they needed they? those backwards-moving wheels on the... Va- on the, uh, on the... the they bought these weird wireless vans. <sighs> and they were a huge old truck, literally a truck. And they were called flying bedsteads. Right. Because the height of the aerials was the height of the truck as well. Mm. And they were... Honestly, they were the, 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 for their time. It was revolutionary. Oh, absolutely! They were yeah. The first sort of radio-controlled police vehicles, and we're talking, yeah, we're talking into the nineteen twenties mm. here. Amazing. So, and you just kind of think, how did we get stuff done when basically, if anybody got cushed over the head, someone had to run to a phone on the corner? You know, I mean, it's just yeah. how did the world work? And yet, it obviously, did. I mean, <laughs> you, where, where all you had was a stick and a whistle. Ah, grand old days. I started with a stick and a whistle and a radio that didn't work. And if you got roller skates, you'd have been in the flying squad. (laughs) Absolutely. I met the flying squad once. Oh, yeah? If you want me to tell you a story. Why not? I can tell you because I think the story is about 15 or 16 years old now. The the people have done their time and they're out. They come and hunt me down now. Ah, fair enough. Luckily, we don't tell anybody that you're a policeman. (laughs) (laughs) No, luckily that, isn't it? I was um, taking, we used to have a thing called puppy walking where you used to take new students out. I saw you do that on Blue Peter. Absolutely. I'm not the one that knew Valerie Singleton, I'm the oh, other one. Okay. Leslie Judd. Ah. I have the legs for it. And we're we're in our van, so there's a minibus. It's got lights and sirens and mm-hmm. things. So we're driving along and we've got about six probationary police officers and there's three of us. And all of a sudden this car goes the other way. And the driver goes to me, did you see that? I said, well, yes, it was a car. He said, no, the parking ticket on the car. And I went, that's really stretching credulity a little bit. He says, well, as the driver went past, he ducked behind his um, steering wheel. Mm. So we spun round and went after it, and it didn't want to stop for us. No, well, no, I mean, this is it. I mean, what would you do? Oh, look, I'm doing something dodgy, so when I see a policeman, what I'll do is act really, really suspicious. He was the most stupidest (laughs) criminal in the world. I've seen that police camera action. It's full of people like (laughs) that. So um, we lost them, because obviously he's in a car and we're in a minibus. Yes. We lost him on a straight bit of road. That's how good we were. We lost him on a straight bit of road. <laughs> right. And well, yeah, so I say you had to stop for the bus stops, didn't you? That was the problem. <laughs> stop for fuel. Ah. And so on the radio, they called the us back and said, well, I don't know if you know, but a car has just crashed into a um, petrol station right. where you've just passed. Oh, and there's a group of people pulling out the guy and we're getting calls from the members of the public that they're beating him up. <laughs> We're thinking that's a bit extreme, isn't it? Crashing into a petrol yeah, station. That's, that's the great British public helping out. Right. Absolutely. Obviously a villain. Well, that's immediately what we thought. Yeah. So we rock up, as they say, and out we get. Yeah. And there's a lot of people wearing baseball caps with the words police written on them. Oh. And we're like, oh, how'd they get here before us? We didn't hear them on the radio. <laughs> and, Did they order uh, those off Redbubble? <laughs> yes. Anyway, moving on. They're, they're, they've got guns and holsters. And they're, mm. they're looking and we're thinking, hmm, this looks a bit serious. Mm. Best we go quickly. And this guy came up and identified himself right. as the sergeant. And he was explaining that they were the flying squad. Ah. And they quite rightly were the flying squad. And you said, oh, you're not as tall as you are on the telly. <laughs> I said, where's your Granada? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Looked yeah. at me. Yeah. I know what you're supposed to look like. You're not flying squad. You're wearing hats. None of them had a kipper tie on. <laughs> 
And they didn't go love a duck or things like no, that. No, we haven't had our dinner. And they're picking up this guy and dusting him down mm. that is now handcuffed. Who we get, oh, that's the driver of the car. He obviously did a really good job of hiding behind his wheel. So you obviously recognised yeah. him. <laughs> well, they were following him. Mm. We were not aware of it. Ah, and, and it transpires he was uh, the driver for a group of... And it was um, John Thor. Who'd have thought <laughs> John Thor. With his dodgy foot. Um, <laughs> who were going to carry out a blag. A blag. And in the boot of the car was um, some firearms. Oh, blagging equipment. So basically, they'd been under observation wow. for about two months. And we managed to blow it. Oh, well done. But they said, it's not an issue. Mm. We've we got the firearms in the car. We can link him to the team. Mm. He'll come in. All right, yes, we didn't get them doing the job. However, we've got enough for conspiracy, he was saying. Wow. But nice stop. How did you spot him? because it's not on the intel system. And I told him, and he went, yeah, that's about right. He's not very intelligent, this driver. <laughs> so that was our... Um, so when we um, when some of the, the villains in, uh, in the Sweeney seem a bit dim, they're actually still head and shoulders above the actual ones that were... See, you always think that these are criminal masterminds, don't you? That's the thing about these shows, is you generally think that all the criminals are criminal masterminds, except they did a wonderful line in the Sweeney of being sort of slightly uh, seedy. Quite a lot. Who's the one, the super snout? You know, the guy who was also... Yes. Um, who's in the... He's, um, he's, uh, is it David Kelly? Is he, The guy, yeah, the, the one-armed chef from Robin's Nest. Yes. But, he, yes, but he, Kelly, he's yes. playing... Oh, it may be him, it may not be him, but there's all sorts of sort of slightly dodgy geezers in terrible, terrible jackets picking their teeth. What I love, right? Because obviously uh, there is some great dialogue in the pilot. You know, there's that. what's that opening line? Get your trousers. Get your on trousers your on your nicked. Yeah, yeah. the, the, the that's line. Regan's first line in the. But in opening episode of the series proper, the first time you see Regan is he's wearing a kind of negligee. Yes, yes. That he's yeah. borrowed off his uh, latest girlfriend, who is Maureen Lippman. Who gets well? Isn't it sort of some air hostess who gets threatened by? But basically, the, the, oh no, no, no! That's the first episode. I'm thinking of Ringer. Mm. Just ignore me. I'm thinking mm. of Ringer because mm. she uh, she gets his shirts done for him. Mm. But what you get is these incredibly strangely glamorous girlfriends. A mm. whole stream of them throughout the series, really, which sort of beggars belief. But basically, he's obviously very good at that sort of picking up the ladies. Although why they're not maintaining them? Why these ladies are drinking in the same places he is, we'll never know. But yes, certainly, Ringer, you get incredible guest stars. I mean, that opening episode, you get Ian Hendry doing his seedy bit. You get Brian. Oh, very silly. I mean, that, isn't it? Ian Hendry playing a bit thick, you know, is a thing to be be seen, really, isn't it? Playing the dim one. You get He's Brian. Brian blessed missed. as the criminal mastermind with a lot of grey talc in his beard, by the look of it, and unless it was just a very grey beard by then. And you get Alan Lake, who apparently was absolutely as a fart. Yes. For, oh yeah. For most, most of the fight was, sequence, yes. but apparently in the fight sequence, he actually he hurted John Thor. He took a swing for him and actually actually hurted him. And, and a lot of that was to do with the fact that... that, that he was, he was Brahms. Absolutely hammered. To be fair, most of them were Brahms. Because what used to happen was when they were filming on location, mm. they'd break for lunch, find the nearest pub and repair to the pub mm. and then have to be literally pulled out of the pub. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at a list of guest stars mm. and it is immense. Mm. So Catherine Shell. Yes. Colin Welland. Jeffrey Whitehead, Richard Wilson. Richard Wilson. I don't believe it. Absolutely. And he was one of the bosses. He was one of the detective uh, chief superintendents. Yeah. 
You see, that's the thing about Haskins, isn't it? That's the thing I always think. Of Garfield Morgan in the completely thankless role as, as the as the known as the Friday afternoon man. Oh, he's the only one who was still sober enough to film on Friday afternoon. <laughs> no, no, no. He was the, the one who was quite a good drinker. Oh, as well. right. They all were, were good drinkers, but mm. he used to come in on Friday afternoon to do his pieces in oh, the first right. series. So he was known as the Friday afternoon man. Ah, oh, right. Because if you notice, he doesn't appear on he doesn't appear on location much. No. Except when he goes to tell off a solicitor in his back garden and you see him in the long shot. Yeah, it is fascinating. Yeah. I, the thing that gets me about Haskins, poor, poor love, is that the one thing he doesn't get is the two feature films. Yeah, he wasn't available for that. And, and I think he would have turned them down anyway because mm. they were nothing like the Haskins character. Mm. I, I, I find the Sweeney 2, mm. which came out in 78, hilarious because mm. of their boss in Sweeney 2. Mm who is the most unlikely flying squad boss you would ever think there would be. Uh, Denim Elliott. Denim, no? Denim Elliott. In the TV series, that's that wonderful chemistry between uh, Carter and, yeah. um, and Regan. And that's all natural. A lot of that, what they used to do was throw their own lines in. Right. And you can see sometimes... A bit of improv. ad lib. Mm. Well, Denim Elliott was very good mm. at ad-libbing. Mm. And there's this wonderful line in The Sweeney 2 where he sat in his prison cell and he goes, Jack, there was this film, um, I think it's Robert Redford. And there's this pause. He's supposed to say all the king's men. Mm. And he doesn't. He just turns to him and goes, deep throat. <laughs> and John, in a heartbeat, just goes, uh, I think you mean all the king's men. And he went, yes, probably. <laughs> And so things like that will be kept in for the TV series. Things like when they're driving along in the pilot Mm. in the car and he goes, did you see the fight last night? Mm. No, I didn't. Yeah, bleeding terrible. He goes, cool, look at that. Mm. They're looking at the love or a mother should have brought her a raincoat. (laughs) Like this. Things like that were all ab lit. Matey banter, matey banter. Matey banter, yes. Matey banter. So, um, yeah, but at the beginning of the TV series, there was a bit of a um, vine for key position mm-hmm. because you had Douglas Canfield, mm-hmm. you had Ian Kennedy Martin, mm-hmm. and you had Ted Charles, mm. who were all vying to run the series. Right. And um, it came down to Ian Kennedy Martin and Ted Charles. Mm. And uh, Ted Charles got it. Right. And unfortunately, Ian fell out with Ted. Mm. Which was a shame. So that's why that he only worked on Regan. Yeah, and that's why there's a lot of changes when mm. it comes to the Sweeney. Mm. Little things like mm. the set, because it was all filmed in a disused school in Hammersmith. Right. And the rules of filming were that if you're going on location, you can't go more than 10 miles in a straight line right. away from the headquarters in Hammersmith. Oh, okay. Right. Because it was all about money. Mm. quite rightly so and also the other thing was if the weather turned bad you could go straight back to Hammersmith and you can do your studio stuff yes, there yes that makes sense yeah. and uh, Hammersmith was the same it was the headquarters of uh, Houston Films mm. and also it's it, you know the first time they used that was for um, Special, Special Branch mm. yeah but it's, you can see you can see the actual school mm. the old school building in the last episode of uh, Jack on Nave the Sweeney's mm. last ever episode mm. so most of the stuff there was yeah internal stuff was all filmed on location really so basically what you're saying is every time you see an interior at the police station in the sweeney it's belting it down outside yeah probably (laughs) (laughs) well they all look run down and worn and they've got wooden floors and things they're all school rooms (laughs) and now i look at it i go yes they are (laughs) 
with a couple of flats up against the side of it. Wow. They usually used the gym. Um, it was a school that was opened in 1883, mm. Collett Court, it's called. Mm. Some of it still exists. Uh, not sure if the main building exists where they filmed, because mm. uh, but the rest of it's grade two listed. Mm. So there you go. So, of course, George Carter is married uh. in the uh, first part of the Sweeney to uh, a future Juliet Bravo, which is yeah. Stephanie Turner. Do you know why she got killed off? Uh, because it, it uh, well, I assumed it was to do with giving Carter a bit more bird action, as it were, but presumably Partly, not. but that wasn't the main reason. All oh, right, okay, go on. A particular person who played his his wife, mm-hmm. her agent started asking for more money. Ah, I see. And there were a few uh, artistic differences, shall we say. Ah, right. Well, maybe to wanted so, better lines, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so when um, Dennis Waterman went and said, oh, I see you're killing my wife off. Mm. Ted Charles said, yeah, her, uh, her agent asked for some more money, so we're going to run her over in season two. <laughs> Killed by Patrick Troughton. Wow. On contract by Patrick Troughton. Wow. How's that for it? Ah. Oh, my word. He turns up in the first Morse as well, doesn't he? He does, yes. He's a seedy bloke on a bicycle, yeah, isn't he? Absolutely. But the thing I like about George and his wife is they've got the same plates that we still use today. <laughs> so we call them our Sweeney plates. It's kind of weird. I always think that. Plates of meat or just No, plates? no, the plates. The, 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 the plates they're washing up in the scene where they're washing up. Oh, I think. Gosh. Oh, yeah. See, all that stuff's trendy again now, isn't well, it? Well, I don't know. We never, we never stop using it so <laughs> we haven't managed to quite scrub the pattern off it yet but uh, they're, they're very old plates but they were they, they came from my grandma's house so there we go oh bless so, but yes that, but, that's just it always makes me think that as i say your old cars and your old crockery catch excellent up with as long as it's not your wife fronts and your um nylon shirts you'll be fine now getting back to the guest stars we were talking about Patrick yeah. Moa and George Layton as a pair of Australian villains who actually have fantastic, a yes, recurring roles in a couple of episodes. What do you they make of do. that? So you've got Trojan Bus, mm-hmm. which is the last one they were in. Mm-hmm. Is it Golden Fleece as well? Wasn't it? Isn't it and Golden Fleece, yeah. in which they um, they're two. I think fly by night criminals. Not the most intelligent of them. They're just allegedly um, Australian. Allegedly, oh gosh. Yes. Um, I think, um, yeah. The less said about that, the better. Yeah. Oh, you know why he's got a broken... You know why he's got some dark sunglasses on, don't you? Did someone hit him? Someone hit him in the pub, yes. Fair enough. (laughs) They were having an argument the day before they started filming in the pub. Right. George Layton got punched in the face. Oh, it's so, you know, and you know, George Layton always comes across as such a sweetie pie as well. Who would want to punch George oh, Layton in the exactly, face? Exactly, exactly. I mean, all those all those scripts he's written, and oh, lovely chap, lovely chap. Why would anybody be horrible to him? I mean, unless, of course, it was just someone who heard his Australian accent. Yeah, probably. Perhaps he was trying it out in the for. pub <laughs> on the uh, barman. And, uh, <laughs> then, of course, you've got um, Patrick Murr, who's typecast as being Patrick Murr in that, wouldn't mm. they? <laughs> Patrick <laughs> Murr with, with, an Austra- with a vaguely Australian accent. Yeah, it's Very vague, which wanders all over the continent. Oh, dear me. Yes, they come up to a sticky end, don't they? Well, they don't get killed, but they get badly they get badly injured and shot at, don't they? But they are recurring. You don't get many recurring um, guest stars. No, there's there's another one, Sweeney, chap by the name of Sweeney. Can't remember his first name. Mm. And George I got to meet George Sweeney. He plays probably the nastiest villain there has ever been in the Sweeney. He's the soldier oh, that yeah. has um, gone AWOL from the army. Mm. And um, he's decided to take it upon himself to go and do robberies on people's houses. Mm. But it starts off that he, he's holding this uh, 
man's wife and child mm. as he's robbing the house. Mm. And he's Irish. He comes home and he's Irish. And right. of course, he just puts the Sweeney character, be soldier, puts a shotgun to his chest. And mm. sh- he was a nasty piece of work. Mm. He ends up dead in, a f- yeah. uh, in Wexham Park in yeah. uh, one of the last... Um, I think that's Escape. It was, it was quite controversial for its violence in the t- at the time, wasn't it? I mean, I think people got very... I mean, did it... I assume it was on the Mary Whitehouse radar, but it did seem... It didn't seem... I think... Did the police feel uncomfortable with the Sweeney when it was on? Initially. Or, or was initially. it just the Daily Mail that felt uncomfortable about the Sweeney movie? <laughs> I think the problem was it was the first time that violence was being portrayed in a regular programme and seemed that to hurt. was realistic. Yeah. When they got hit, you looked as though it hurt. Yeah, and quite often it did. Yeah, and I think it was uh, the police were a little bit worried about their image. Mm. When aren't they worried about their image? Because no. it seems to be more worried about image than it does about getting the job done sometimes. Well, there's a lot of that, isn't there? Yes, in any sort of business. So I think they were very worried about mm. how they will be looked at. But I think it's a case of people want to feel safe. They mm. just don't want to know how it's done sometimes. Mm. Yeah. And you fall into that trap. But yeah, I would say it, it well, was excessively violent. Yeah. But then again, the 70s weren't exactly... Um, Squeaky clean. Nice time. No. And I think the other thing is that I, I think there's a definite streak of morality running through the Sweeney to a certain extent. You do feel quite often that, that you are playing out the great Greek tragedies almost sometimes. Yeah. You know, it's very much, there are, there are some terrible, you know, it's not a black and white world. It's a very grey, yeah. you know, there are lots of grey areas. There are, you know, bad cops. I mean, there's what's the one with, is it Norman Eshley? Who's a, yes. the yep. coward? I mean, I remember that one being on. I remember the actual article in the TV Times when it was on and because that was the one where Jack Regan had that green puffer jacket on. And no, and, and, he, and he runs <laughs> away because he gets frightened and he's, and he's found hiding in that phone box. I think it is a few streets away. Yes, yeah. and, and you know, that's the realism of it, isn't oh, God, it? Yeah, absolutely. But like I say lots of morality plays. I mean, my, I think my personal favourite, I don't know if you've got a favourite episode particularly, but my personal favourite is the one where there's the bank job you know the the Do you um, know what thou shall not kill mm. the one of my fa- that probably is my famous because mm. there is a, there's there's a heck of a message in that one mm. that's um, basically the uh, bank manager's family are being held aren't they by the villains and uh, and then they it all goes wrong and this a siege that's the word i'm desperately groping for yeah yeah just an astonishing 50 minutes of television really that one. and it's a, it you know this is where haskins is put in the place of do i deal with it now mm. or do i let the situation carry on mm. and there is no right and wrong answer to it mm. because you could be left at the end because you end up with lots of corpses mm. with somebody saying well he should have gone in earlier but mm. i could have ended up with more people dead yeah and the, the wonderful thing about that is um, that was filmed at brunel university in Ansbridge. Mm. it is all location mm. and it just seems so natural. Mm. It seems so natural that one of when something goes wrong, it doesn't just go wrong a little bit. Mm. It goes catastrophe. I think the expression is this one's going to be a right bastard. Yes. Yeah. And, absolutely. But the inter- again, I suppose the interesting thing about that is when we look at the real world, and now you know people end up in court because they make bad decisions on the day that's played out in a small way in that episode of the sweeney isn't it it's kind of like yeah. you know if you make a decision and it's the wrong decision you will get in, in in the frame for it you know you will you will have to take the consequences of that but where in those days decisions like that would roll downhill wouldn't they? Mm. whereas we have more culpability mm. attached to a single individual mm. 
who makes that decision, yeah. where in perhaps the 70s, Haskins wouldn't have got hold over the calls. I think to a certain extent, we expect perfection from these people and we forget sometimes that they are just human beings, you know, that yeah. make a choice and, and, and they make a bad choice and, and they, there are consequences to that. But it is interesting, I think, that to see this played out on television because we still don't seem to be able to make the leap into... You know, we can be sympathetic to the story on the telly, but be less sympathetic to it when it happens... You know, because it yeah. has real-world consequences. I think that's an interesting aspect of that. Monday nights shall never be the same. <laughs> <laughs> but again, Sweeney, so popular they made two feature films, which are both a bit, I don't know, more violent, more booby, more... Um... <laughs> well, I think the second one keeps abreast of things more than the first one. Story's too naked for the small screen or something. I don't really... Well... No, it's, um, you know, there's a very, if, I, if I've got time to tell you the mm. quick story, Linda Bellingham mm. is in the first film mm. where she appears absolutely stark mm. naked and um, they have to inject her. Mm. It's as if she's committing suicide. Mm. So they didn't have a, a nurse available mm. and they were going to do it with a mock needle, but mm. they didn't have a mock needle. Right. So they thought, oh, she said, don't worry, just, um, just inject me with water. Mm. I'll be fine. Mm. We didn't have a nurse. So the lighting supervisor injected her right with water because he used to work with the St John's ambulance. Right, and she was fine. Yeah. Her left arm was twice as big as it normally would, <laughs> but the swelling went down after a week. She was very lucky she didn't oh, something serious didn't unknown. happen to her. But yeah, that was that was uh, one of her first roles. She appeared naked in. All right. And uh, also Diane Keane is in that one, isn't she? But it's, Diane Keane, she gets machine guns, yes. doesn't she? But it's kind of like, it is incredible. I mean, there's a, the poor old copper with his helmet, which get, explodes at one point, who's just <laughs> standing there and, and suddenly, yeah, that's that's kind of weird. But it's, it's astonishingly graphic, these strange films. Sweeney with an exclamation mark. Sweeney, just Sweeney, yes. exclamation mark. There's that wonderful line where they, they look at the people that have been, um, been shot in mm. the... Um, Scrapyard mm. and Jack Regan goes, Blimey, what they done with them with nine inch nails? Yeah, just I, I, again trying to be perhaps more. This is how it would you, know, you think it's bad on the telly, mate. But of course, this is where <laughs> Vandervelt crosses paths with the Sweeney. Yes, so Barry yeah. Foster is the well, I like Barry Foster, yeah, but he's I a, bit, like a bit of a villain in that one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I don't, I do, I'll be honest with you, I'm not a great fan of the first film. No. It, it really goes outside. I think the it's trying to be. Something else. It's always trying to be a bit peck and par. I think it's trying to be. Yes. It's trying to be something else, and it has that really enigmatic zoom crash ending, doesn't it? Where he says, "Was it? Was it? They didn't kill, they him, didn't you kill did, him. You yeah. did." And you get this close up, close up, close up on the eyes, you know. And it's uh, and it's kind of. I, it does feel because you've got that sort of independent, often ready filmmaking that was made in the seventies, and it feels like it's going for that almost drive-in market in America. Really, of course, no one in America would understand a bloody word anyone was. <laughs> But then we come to the Sweeney 2. Sweeney 2, which has this very strange Nazi porn sequence, which I think yes! sticks out for me, and also, and also the sawing the barrels off a very nice purdy shotgun, apparently. But um, Yes, I like the Sweeney 2. That is back mm. to what the Sweeney should be, I feel. And a bit of location, a bit, bit of go to Spain. Go to Spain, or, or, is, it, Spain. or is it a gravel pit somewhere in Hartlepool? <laughs> <laughs> it's Malta, actually. Ah, Malta, right. So that was nice, nice bit of holiday. Yeah. Jolly good. Kids and duty free. Yeah, not back to sangria. Yeah. Sangria. <laughs> Bring back a donkey. 
a donkey in a, one of those round hats mm. called. <laughs> oh, sombrero. <laughs> sombrero. Yeah, it's Malta and Mexico. They're pretty much the same. It's interesting. It's it's directed by uh, Tom Clegg. Right. And Tom Clegg is a Hammer director, isn't mm-hmm. he? So he would have been doing that probably after just finishing on Hammer. But they must have made money on the first one because, I mean, it's obviously got yeah. a bigger budget. I mean, that's the thing about sequels. Is more, more of the same, please. But, yeah. So you, you like Sweeney too, even the even the strange yeah. Nazi porn at the beginning of it, which is, is well, is, this is that sequence is just bizarre. I still find that it can, it's yes. Oh, you mean the, the, the lady um, dancing? Is it what she? Is the it, lady dancing? Is she dancing on on the car? Is it in a car? In Rubber the is a natural preservative. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> yeah. I, I I just find that I, I I first saw this film in eighty two. Right. I was 12 years old. Yeah, it, it, it shaped your life. <laughs> and uh, I, there's there's about four things I remember from it. Yeah. One is the film. Yeah. Then there's the banter afterwards. Yeah. Then there's the key, John Thor falling asleep mm. on the sofa mm. and his date coming in mm. and putting, her, putting his door key down his pants. Mm. And there's the infamous... Suicide scene at the end where the baddie puts the knickers over the end of the shotgun. Now, um, that's been many questions asked about that. Okay. Do you have an answer? Yes. He says, I keep getting this question. He goes, why the hell do you put the knickers over the end of the gun? Well, he's just shot his girlfriend. Mm. And, of course, you know, the, the end of the barrel's going to be hot. This is Ken Hutchison, isn't it? Ken Hutchison's That's actually. it, yeah. Mm. He plays a really good baddie. And so he doesn't burn his mouth. Well, mm. you think that's the last thing you'd be worrying about, considering you won't have a head. Um, well, yeah. He's covered it in her G-string. Yes. Well, put it in his mouth. What a way to go. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, uh, But, yeah, they did. Quite well in the box office. I'm just looking through the castle. Even Nigel Hawthorne in there somewhere. Oh gosh, he was the he was the commander. And, and, he does, and dear old yes. Freddie Treves. Freddie Treves, yes. Mm. Amongst many others, oh, Georgina Hale's in there as well, and Patrick Malahide, weirdly. So there we go. Ah. Diana Weston as an air hostess. <laughs> oh yes, that's what you're trying to chat him up on the plane. Yeah. And Jack Regan's going to, and, and they're half cut. I am one of yeah. Her Majesty's officers in the flying squad. Yeah. And he's like leaning, sliding down the. the did, did it work line. for you as a line when you tried it? <laughs> no. And she goes, Now that's funny. Your mates just told me you're a used car salesman. <laughs> <laughs> and you can imagine that Dennis Waterman would say that kind Absolutely. of thing to him as well. Absolutely. So uh, the other thing that surprises me about the Sweeney before we finish off is mm. ch- the children's things. There was a, yes. there was a board game. <laughs> yes. It was a bloody Sweeney board game, and there was was it rub down transfer sets and things like that. It actually had basically children's and they had annuals as well. Yeah, they? They had Sweeney annuals. Yeah, and you just kind of think so. I'm not even sure they knew what they're talking about. The thing is, if you think you can sell it, you'll market it. But absolutely, but, that's um, that's. I think that's exactly right. Um, so, did you and down the station? Did you play the Sweeney board game a lot at all? No, didn't play the Sweeney board game. No, with your little plastic cortina. <laughs> <laughs> when I was in the robbery squad, I never told anyone to get that trousers yeah, on. Had this vision of of this. I've never played the Sweeney board game. I just have this thing that is take three goes and have a scotch. <laughs> Scotch. It's a drinking game. It's basically drinking game for fourteen-year-olds. <laughs> Miss a turn. Have a double. <laughs> Keep it at your chest. Go with, pull it there, Stuart. Go to the bar. Start a fight. 
I'll have a double vodka. Yeah, no. I, I, <laughs> get your trousers on, you, Nick. The last ever episode, and I, I, I hope you don't mind me throwing this one, no, no, uh, they ever filmed was Hearts and Minds. This was the uh, Morikambi and Wise episode. Yes. Uh, what do you think of that one? Uh, it, it, well, I mean, it, it may... <laughs> It does matter. I, th- I believe uh, isn't Peter Glaze in there as well? Yes, he is. Isn't yeah, yes. Peter Glaze. The uh, yes, the uh, well, uh, we all know him from um, Cracker. I've got to, have to use that on a previous episode. Yes, everybody has. I, I've got that now as, as a sound file, so we'll have to play that in. But yes, oh, brilliant. Peter brilliant. Glaze in it. But but yeah, Morecambe and Wise. I mean, to be fair, if you're gonna write an episode and you and you want to write Morecambe and Wise into it, it's going to be eccentric. I mean, in many ways, it's quite. It's quite a nice episode, but it's also kind of bizarre because everybody seems completely out of character, don't they? And, and I, I think they're just corpse all over the place, don't they? Dennis Waterman, when they go to his... Um, <laughs> when they go to Morgan Weiss's show and speak to them in the dressing room, mm-hmm. when um, the story is when Eric knows you're about to go, he'll go for the jugular. <laughs> and if you watch that scene, that was filmed four times and they just they gave up in mm. the end because they couldn't shoot that scene without Dennis laughing. Mm. He would just walk in and just start laughing. Mm. Couldn't stop it. This was payback, wasn't it? Because they both appeared in the Morecambe and Wise Christmas Well, this was show. it. Had, had they crossed over to ITV that year? Was that the year they, they did the big crossover and this was kind of part of... No, no, no. This was on the BBC. They were still on the BBC at the time. Yeah. Uh, this was uh, 76. Right. I was just trying to work out, you know, by the time they filmed the Sweeney episode, had they crossed the Great Divide or, or were they still I think 78 was about their last time, wasn't it, with the BBC? Mm. <laughs> As they'd say, mm. we're on our way, Lou. Yeah, but yeah, that was quite a bizarre... It's bizarre again, episode. these two sort of major cultural... I mean, the, the interesting thing about... I don't know about you, I sometimes, when actors, shall we say, cameo on a variety show, I always sort of find that staring at their feet and a bit of embarrassment sometimes. It can yeah. be a little bit... You know, like, but you know, they'll suddenly bring the stars from and they'll announce them. Oh, they'll come on yes. you just go, oh. Oh, this is going to be awful. Yeah. But actually, to be fair, I mean, in terms of the actors, the performers that were appearing on the Morecambe and Wise show, they were usually huge stars. So getting two guys off a television show, I mean, it definitely says how high profile the Sweeney was. Absolutely. For that to be, to them to be considered guest worthy for the Morecambe and Wise show. And also to sort of appear on the other channel as yeah. well, isn't it? But then to turn that around and actually build us an episode of the programme they're in around them as because I'm trying to think really I know Morecambe Wise did a couple of films didn't they the um, mm. in the 60s but they hadn't really had much of a apart from you know the massive appearances on the actual Morecambe Wise show they hadn't yeah. really done much else in no. terms of filming and acting since, really. It is. But the skit that they use where they're on stage mm. with the dummy mm. is actually a turn that they used. When, Everything uh, that they do on stage yeah. is a turn that they would use. When they used to do their variety act, yeah. even before they were on you know, national yeah. television. That's amazing. And um, there's that wonderful line, there's the two Sweeney lads are staying there on, uh, out of the wings mm. and oh, the dancing girls go by. And there's Dennis going, I would, I would, I would. Arwood, and the man of indeterminable short height goes through, mm. who was obviously the dresser or somebody. Mm. And Jack, <laughs> Jack Regan just turned around and goes, Arwood. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so the fun, I could, you can imagine the fun, because it starts off really seriously. Yeah, it yeah. starts off with a break-in yeah. and um, somebody dies. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sure. saying it's it's not a light-hearted, fluffy episode by any stretch. No. I mean, but there it are just moments. just descends into farce. Yeah. 
did you know, I mean because yeah, I think it's nice isn't it? To, to a certain extent it's nice to see that bit of the Morecambe and Wise act really because so little yeah. of the early stuff actually does survive and it's, it's actually to see them just doing that because you can tell they really actually got on I mean very few double yeah. acts get on don't they but they actually really seem to just like each other's company and I think it's nice to have that fragment if you like well it's it's the mirror image of Dennis and John isn't it mm. oh yes so. I mean they lived they lived in each other's pockets mm. for four years didn't they 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 socialized mm. the families met together they drank they went out they um they 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 appeared on tv programs yeah. together they stitched each other up on this is your life and that matiness um, does sort of actually come across on screen so absolutely it was so natural mm-hmm. so natural mm-hmm. but yet dennis waterman wasn't going to be the first choice and i can't remember who it was but um when they put the two of them together and they did a scene mm-hmm. they went we've got it yeah we've got we've got the pair we need and i think that's the thing isn't it you can't fake that kind of thing I think no. it's, I think when people try to fake that kind of thing in programs, it becomes increasingly obvious and it doesn't work. But when it does work, it's, you know, it's lightning in a bottle. It's just, you, you know, you, you sort of, was it? You bring nitro and glycerin or whatever they, you know, <laughs> so to, to quote the persuaders. But you know, it's kind of like you know the actual when that works well, it does come across on screen, and that's why the viewers come back. So Sweeney, absolutely, uh, still, still a fan. Yeah, I'm very sort of. Um careful about which episodes i choose mm. some of them can be absolutely painful to watch yes because they have even then i don't i i think they were stretching the credulity of drama oh right um but yeah some if you accept the fact it is a product of the period yes we have to qualify a lot of the television we talk about on this is that you know you have to accept that you don't have to like it but no. equally you know you can't pretend interestingly enough i was watching the deep space nine that was set in the 50s you know and he's a 50s writer the other day and i was just quite impressed that they didn't pretend oh, right. Avery Brooks. Mm-hmm. He imagines he's a science fiction writer in the 50s, but they don't pretend the racism of the time doesn't happen. And I was quite impressed with the fact of that, because nowadays I think we sort of brush it aside in a lot of drama. So in some ways, when you're watching The Sweeney, you are getting a taste of not necessarily that it's a good thing, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but this was how society was sort of set up, and that is worrying, but it's a very real show, you know, in that yeah. sense. I don't think it would have worked in the 60s. No. It definitely wouldn't have worked in the 80s. No. Onwards. The 70s were grim. There was industrial strife. There were People weren't happy with their lot in life. Crime was on the increase and the streets were violent. Mm. That is a perception that we get from history. Uh, fashion was terrible mm. and the food that we ate was just amazingly bad yeah. for us. <laughs> but it's a game changer. I think The Sweeney is yeah. a game changer. I genuinely do. I think yeah, basically there's police series before The Sweeney and police series after The Sweeney and the thing that changes them is that four years of the Sweeney. Even just the general banter, the more sort of realistic quotes, realistic approach to storytelling and all that kind of thing. Mm. And I think it's a crossroad. I say it's not a crossroads because that would be a terrible thing to compare it to. But it, It's a watershed. It's a watershed, yeah, absolutely right. And I think it's kicked a lot of old-time series into the grass. And the fact that it's still been shown forever on ITV3 in the afternoons yeah. does mean it does have an appeal that a lot of shows from that time people really don't remember or don't care about or but but people will still come and they'll watch the Sweeney so yeah, yeah. fabulous well thank you for that no. today uh, Warren no, thank you we will that. Uh, have another natter about something else some other time absolutely uh, <laughs> um, I don't know what it is yet but I'm sure we'll have you back <laughs> so uh, if you've got your trousers on now I have indeed and you're going to go off and have your dinner <laughs> I'm having my dinner Alright.
Excellent. Well, right, make, make sure it's not a liquid lunch, and we'll talk to you again soon. You take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay, and you too. Bye-bye. So that's it for another Vision on Sound. My thanks to Warren and, of course, to all the usual suspects. Hope to see you soon. Goodbye and take care. <laughs>